0: Turpentine is excited to announce our new show, The AI Daily Brief, hosted by Nathaniel Whittemore. The AI Daily Brief is a daily show that covers all things AI, from legislation to new technologies in the market, to the philosophical and ethical debates around generalized intelligence. If you're looking for an edge to stay up to date on everything AI, subscribe to The AI Daily Brief at the link in the description.
1: I think this idea of, of mapping one latent space to another is a very powerful idea. I think it's always best to try to take advantage of that as much as possible. And the real, I guess, innovation these days is to be able to use these multimodal spaces as well, um, and, and being able to map, you know, different things to these to these multimodal spaces. That's kind of a really exciting area.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan Levens, joined by my co host, Eric Torenberg. Hello, and welcome back to the Cognitive Revolution. Our guest today, and also for our next episode is Tanishk Matthew Abraham. Tanishk is a remarkable talent. He started college at seven years old, gave his first TED Talk shortly thereafter, and has recently completed his PhD, just as he turned 20 years old. He is also the CEO of MedArc, an organization he founded with the goal of translating AI progress to real-world medical applications. If you listen to this show, you know that much of the incredible AI progress we've recently seen has been unlocked by a strikingly consistent recipe. A clever, easy to score objective called a loss function allows the transformer architecture to be scaled up and trained with unsupervised, often web scale data. This approach has repeatedly advanced the state of the art in text generation, image understanding, image generation, and so much more. Against this backdrop, Tanishq has recently published two remarkable papers with two different sets of co-authors, which show that there is still plenty of opportunity to produce breakthrough results, even with relatively small data sets and modest compute budgets by using more thoughtfully designed, problem-specific architectures. The first, called Reconstructing the Mind's Eye, which we'll cover in today's episode, shows that AI can quite literally read minds. Leveraging pre-trained CLIP and stable diffusion models, Tanishk and his collaborators are, are able to take fMRI scan data collected while a person viewed a particular image and reconstruct that same image with remarkably high fidelity. Our conversation doesn't depend on visual aids, but to properly appreciate this result, you absolutely must look at the headline graphic of this paper. Follow the link in the show notes, and I promise you will be impressed. For me, this conversation was not only a chance to learn about some of the latest techniques that leverage the power of pre-trained foundation models in small data environments, but also a chance to reflect on the big picture. This result, like so many others we've seen recently, would have felt like science fiction just a couple of years ago. Now with the pace of AI progress so relentless, they often seem to come and go with minimal fanfare. And just as important, I think Tanishq's work demonstrates the potential for AI to help advance neuroscience in general. Decoding the brain's activity in a non-invasive way holds the promise of helping us understand our own human cognition like never before, potentially bringing an entirely new meaning to the phrase cognitive revolution. As always, if you're finding value in the show, I would really appreciate it if you'd take a moment to share it with your friends. We recently hit a new high as the number 15 rated show on Apple's technology podcast chart. And while I'll always prioritize depth over reach, it is extremely gratifying to know that this project is helping others make sense of the rapidly evolving AI landscape. So now, without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tanishq Matthew Abraham. Tanishk, Matthew, Abraham, welcome to The Cognitive Revolution. Thank you for having me. Very excited to have you. You are prolific uh, all of a sudden, if not uh, not always. Uh, For folks who don't know you, you are um, a child prodigy, I think fair to say, who's now uh, grown into a young adult AI researcher who is hitting on the level of, uh, from what I can tell, a tenured professor. So extremely uh, impressive young career that you have, and a couple of papers that have come out in just the last week or so, both of which are super interesting and and for a whole bunch of reasons. One about reading the state of the brain and translating what is detected in the brain into a reconstruction of what the person saw, uh, which is pretty amazing. And there's some incredibly striking visuals there. And then one also that is about taking raw images of tissues and predicting what those would look like if they were treated in various ways to then allow like a lab technician to, to read, you know, what information they contain and and make diagnoses. So super fascinating stuff, really where the rubber hits the road kind of research. This is not, uh, not pie in the sky at all, but like very sort of applied practical hands on stuff. And I think it's just, uh, fantastic. So great work. For starters, um, and um, I'm looking forward to getting into all the details. Yeah, sounds great. (laughs) So let's talk about the first paper um, first. This is the one that has, I think, blown up a little bit more on uh, social media. It's called Reconstructing the Mind's Eye, FMRI to Image with Contrastive Learning and Diffusion Priors. Maybe just for starters, I was surprised to learn, if I understand correctly, there is a FMRI data set that was already out there in the public um, for you to build on, so maybe just start off by kind of telling us what you began with as you undertook this project.
1: Yeah, it seems like I think the field of neuroscience also tends to have somewhat of a kind of open approach to to research in terms of releasing data sets, and you know there are these sorts of databases with you know neuroscience data sets like EEG data sets, fMRI data sets. So luckily, um, you know there has been some of these data sets have been released where You know, they they take, uh, you know, a subject, ask them to look at, you know, some images and they measure their, uh, the fMRI signal at the same time. And so this was, uh, so there have been a few data sets over the years that have done similar sorts of things. Uh, The data set that we used uh, was released, I think maybe it was 2020, 2021, so pretty recently, I think. Um, So it was, it's a pretty recent data set. It's a, it's a very high resolution data set. so it's used to, uses a so, so most of the data sets are um, using like, I think magnet that is used for the MRI. It's I think like 1.5 Tesla, 3 Tesla, something around this range. Whereas the one that this one is using is seven Tesla. So it's a much more pow- powerful magnet. So it actually results in a much more powerful and higher resolution fMRI. Uh, signal and so you have a, a better signal that you can also measure as well. So this was created by another team and that that conducted that that research and you know they 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 measured the 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 signal for m- many different subjects. I think about eight subjects in total, um, and you know th- the subjects went through hours of of looking at images. Maybe they look at each image for a few seconds, and then the signal would be measured, and then there'd be a break of another few seconds, and then they measure again for another image. So they have that sort of process. And uh, and then, yeah, they, they collected all of that data, and they released it publicly. And so, um, yeah, actually, I wasn't originally aware of this data set. Um, it was only after meeting my, uh, you know, my collaborator here, who's the the first author of the paper, who, who told me about this data set. Actually, we had started working on some similar ideas for this project, uh, you know, about a year ago or so, and we were actually looking at a different data set at the time, we were really happy to see this data set, this new data set that, you know, is much higher resolution and much better signal quality. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was really designed for these sorts of, these sorts of, to research these sorts of uh, questions. So yeah, it's really a great data set. And, you know, it's great to see that the, the, the neuroscience community also has this sort of Open research spirit, so I'm really happy about that, and you know, just kind of makes me more excited to work in that field as well.
0: Yeah, well, the interaction between AI and um, many, if not all, aspects of biology is certainly going to be fascinating, and this is one that um, people are just so struck by because you can look ultimately at this is what we showed the person, and this is what we were able to reconstruct based on a reading of their brain, and you know that that first figure in this paper is incredibly striking where it's just like wow that is not a you know similar I mean it is a similar image but that's not just a somewhat similar image that is a very similar image that really looks like what you you know what you showed the person so you know, we can put a link and we will put a link into the uh, the show notes to the paper but go check out the you know that first visual pause right here and, and go look at it because it really does ground what we're talking about the striking resemblance of the reconstructions is is just incredible
1: the reason why it's doing so well is both because of a combination of this very high quality data set uh, as well as you know the latest ai advances that we're, we're we're taking advantage of and i think these two because of these two factors that's why we're able to see such such great results and so uh, you know this wasn't this, this isn't something that was possible before but only because of these two factors now we're able
0: to see such amazing results Cool, so let's talk um, just a little bit more about the fMRI side and kind of the nature of that data set. So reading through the paper, uh, there's 15,000 voxels. A voxel, as I understand, is a 3D space in and of itself, right, so uh, basically 15,000 little cubes, if you will, you know, each corresponding to a physical region in the brain. Is this all kind of like on the back of the head in the visual cortex? Like how much of the brain is is sort of under consideration here?
1: Yeah, that's that's pro- approximately right. We, we took a we the, the, the data set dataset actually has uh, the fMRI signal of the entire brain, but uh, we we used a subset of the voxels that correspond to visual perception. So um yeah, and this was actually something that the original data set folks actually prepared. They actually prepared a subset of their data w- uh, focused on visual perception, and so that is the subset that that we used in this in the study.
0: If we were to look at the sort of raw data of one voxel, like what would that contain?
1: I think it's just be kind of a a value associated with that particular voxel for that particular um, the signal. So the signal is kind of measuring the FMI is actually measuring kind of it's dependent on the blood oxygenation level. So basically, um, you know, as, as a particular, you know, region in the brain is using, you know, you know, there's when there's a lot of activity, it's going to be using up a lot of uh, blood oxygen. So you kind of see that sort of change in blood oxygenation level. And so you have a value that's associated with that particular voxel that is indicative of the sort of blood oxygenation and the usage of blood oxygen in that, in that area of the
0: brain. Gotcha. Okay. So it's essentially activity or energy. You know, it's just, it's a raw kind of Scalar that says this is how intense activity was in this particular place. Is there a time dimension to it as well, or are you kind of just staring as the user at an image, you know, until there's some sort of you know steady state or whatever that is then kind of averaged? How does that work?
1: Yeah, kind of like that. There is isn't much of a time dimension. Um, fMRI isn't ha- doesn't have as much high um, temporal resolution. Uh, especially because you know you do have this sort of blood oxygenation, and that process is a little bit slower, and so it's it's much harder to get very you know at kind of high accuracy in terms of the time resolution. So it's more of kind of a yeah a single kind of steady state kind of um, value. So th- that's why you know you ha- you have the patient look at it for a few seconds first, and then you take that measurement for over a course of a few seconds, um, and then yeah that that's kind of the measurement that you're using. Yeah.
0: So essentially the input is, you know, when we think about an, an AI model that you're now going to develop on this data set as kind of an input-output device, you know, I always kind of fall back to that framework. The input then is 15,000 numbers that correspond to intensity of activity in a, each, you know, one of 15,000 little regions of the the brain that are all kind of in that back visual cortex area. That's strikingly not that much information uh you know fifteen thousand numbers in the grand scheme of things um feels small does that feel small to you
1: yeah it is yeah it definitely is kind of um striking in terms of how much information is present in the fmri and again like this isn't looking at individual neurons or anything like this this is kind of a a region um it's about one to two like i guess two maybe two millimeters two by two by two millimeter cubed kind of like basically like yeah it's a a two by two by two cube millimeters kind of cube of, of area or volume that you're looking at for that particular voxel. So it's not like a very, um, you know, it's not even that fine grained. It's, it's more fine grained than maybe some of the other technologies like EEG or some of these other technologies. But like, it's not like a lot of these sorts of systems where you have these sorts of invasive, you know, measurements of specific neurons or things like this. It's not looking at specific neurons. So, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that, you know, you would expect you would need the actual neuro- neuron signal, the actual electrical activity, and you know, at that very fine grained level, to be able to get the, you know, to be able to get that response, to be able to uh, accurately predict the, the the reconstruction. But it turns out that's not absolutely necessary, and I think a lot of it has to do with just the way the the brain is organized, and you know, certain, you know, there are certain regions that respond to certain features in an image, for example. So just being able to know like what what regions are being what regions are being activated and responding to, to the image um, that kind of gives you an overall idea of maybe the sorts of features that are there in an image already. So I think, um, yeah, a lot of it has to do with kind of the organization of, of the brain and the visual perception of the brain. And um, yeah, and that's also kind of partly why these sorts of, these sorts of approaches are interesting from a from my research perspective is to also better understand how that perception works as well. Um, And, you know, yeah, what, what's being activated, what's, uh, yeah, what, what kind of signals are there.
0: Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Omniki uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in Omniki so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use CogRev to get a 10% discount. So,
1: uh, yeah, overall, yeah, it, it, it sometimes can be, when you think about it, it's a little bit surprising. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, I think it's just surprising overall that you can, you know, do this sort of reading of brain activity in the first place. You know, whether or not it's with fMRI or any other thing, it's that's like that's still kind of pretty impressive. And doing it in a non-invasive manner, it's like that's pretty surprising. Uh, but yeah, of course, you know, you, you still are getting very high, you, you still have to get that very high quality data, and you know, you know, you have you have doctors, you have uh, subjects that are you know in this MRI machine sitting there for an extended period of time. And so it's still a very, uh, in, you know, kind of involved process anyway. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a great kind of first step and still useful for hopefully research applications. Yeah.
0: I mean, there's the learning is going to go both ways here for sure. I think that's a, another a super key point and probably key theme is like the feedback cycles and dynamics here research-wise is, you know, we're just scratching the surface of that. Again, just grounding for a second. So you said kind of two millimeter cube is one voxel. So if I were to do a little you know mental math on that, I'm like, okay, five by five by five is 125. So there's, there would be in a cubic centimeter, there would be 125 of these voxels. And we're on our way to 15,000. So that would be basically 100 cubic centimeters, so if I'm thinking about that as like the cortex, it's maybe like a 10 by 10 by 1 deep kind of segment of of tissue is what we're really looking at here. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. We've got that kind of slab of tissue. We've divided it up into these 2 millimeter cube voxels. Each one has a number that corresponds to its intensity. That is again where we started. And so that's the input now to the things that you are training AIs to do. I guess there's a couple of big themes here that, that jump out to me. One, the just the volume of data, not that high, right? You've got only so many images, only a few patients. And this was true of your other paper as well, right? It's a low data environment and that creates some, some interesting challenges. Tell me about the outputs. You have multiple different approaches to create different outputs that you use for different purposes. So maybe just run those down for
1: us. The final goal was to, to of course reconstruct the image. We want a final image there. Uh, the approach that we, we wanted to take was um, kind of how can we leverage sort of the existing um, uh, image generation models and image representation models uh, that exist already um, to be able to to, to perform this reconstruction? As well as this additional task that we we talk about, which is retrieval, and so in order to do that, the the goal is to basically get some sort of uh, clip embedding. So this is again like sort of uh, clip models that OpenAI has developed and and released, um, where it's kind of a, it's a sort of joint representation of, of an image and and text, um, and so it's in this sort of you have this sort of representation space, and uh, the idea is that uh, lots of a lot of these image generation models already take in some sort of clip embedding. So if we're able to predict the clip embedding from the fMRI signal, then we can use that clip embedding uh, for uh, image generation and get a reconstruction that way. So that's kind of, uh, kind of at a high level the approach. Uh, there are a few different um, other aspects that allow this to work. So um, the idea is that okay, we have a sort sort of neural network, and a, a basic. MLP, multi-layer perceptron. That's like you know a basic you um, know network architecture, uh, and so we we take this uh, MLP to predict uh, the embedding. And it, the problem is that the embedding that we get at the beginning isn't aligned. So it isn't. Um, so it, so basically, uh, when you when you have these embeddings, like you can get you can get them so that the sort of, I guess, sim- cosine similarities, the similarities. Between the embeddings, kind of all match up the way you want them to, but the actual uh, representations aren't kind of uh, aligned with the other representations. It's not just a problem with, you know, in this case, fMRI embeddings that we're working with, but it's actually an issue that happens with uh, even just within the regular clip where you have image to text, uh, image and text embeddings. So, for example, in the OpenAI DALI work that they have, the, the, they they wanted to take text and then they wanted to, uh, you know, convert that, of course, to a nice Image genera- generation. So the problem is that they they did something similar where they actually took text and then they got the clip embedding for the text, uh, and you know that's that's they just get that because that's how the clip model is already uh, trained. But then that clip text embedding isn't aligned again to the to the image embedding. So of course the the clip um, text embedding, will, you know, for example, if it's let's say it's a picture of a dog and that's the text, and then if it's an actual image of the dog, those those embeddings have high similarity to each other the text embedding and the image embedding but they're not of similar uh, values so that's the issue they're not really of similar values they're not really matching so you cannot take like for example a clip text embedding and pass it in as a clip image embedding to an image generation model that expects clip image embeddings you need to somehow convert from the clip text embedding to a clip image embedding so the dolly paper introduced this diffusion prior which is another a model that converts the clip Text embedding into a clip image embedding and aligns them. And so that's what we did here, where we predicted our clip embedding from the fMRI signal. And then we also had a diffusion prior that would take that predicted fMRI embedding and align it with the clip image embedding. And now we have a, a clip image embedding that's aligned and that can be passed into a pre-trained image net, uh, image generation model. Uh, so that's the, the, the reconstruction pipeline. And then we also have this retrieval pipeline where uh, in this case, you don't really need to have um, the alignment because here all you're looking at is similarity. So you can just say, okay, if you have some sort of fMRI embedding, uh, what, what images are those similar to based on again on cosine similarity of the clip embedding. So you can get the similarity to a bunch of images and you can say these are the ones that are most similar to and that we also did those experiments as well. And we can see that like if we used Images from the from the dataset that we worked with, then the ones that it's most similar to are the actual images that you know the the, the subject actually saw in that case. Or we can also extend it to a very large dataset like Lion Five B, and you know you can do again some sort of similarity and get similar images, and those similar images would look very similar to the actual image. And you can kind of treat this as a a, a generation pipeline without actually using, you know, a generation model, because you know you're getting these sorts of, and uh, you know, similar images that you know correspond very, very closely to the, uh, to the original image. And again, the nice thing about, about what we 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 show in this paper is that you can get actually very fine grain information. So, um, you know, if you had the, the example that we have in our paper, which we think is a really nice example, is that there are actually a lot of zebra images in, in the data set that they, they were working with uh, to, collect, to collect from the, some of the subjects. And so if we have one zebra image that a subject looked at and you try to predict the fMRI signal and you look at the retrieval of, of, of the images, you can actually retrieve the exact same zebra image based on the fMRI embedding that we, uh, you know, we, we predict with our model. And so this indicates that, you know, it's not just, you know, oh, this is a zebra image. You can get, this is the exact zebra image that the patient was looking at. So there's actually that fine-grained level of information that's also present. So that's kind of the two sort of approaches that we have here. We have the sort of reconstruction. We have this retrieval. Uh, There's one other aspect that is also worth pointing out is that because with reconstruction, um, you're, you're having this, yeah, you have this clip embedding and that's being passed into this image generation model. You get some nice image. But. Uh, it would be also nice if, you know, the sort of, sort of positions of, of the, um, uh, objects are similar, or maybe the color are similar, these sorts of more low level information. So we also have a low level pipeline that also, uh, kind of helps predict, um, that that can help with that low level information. And so the idea there is you actually just have a simple model, uh, that takes in the fMRI data and predicts the, um, a, a signal in the, like a, a VAE representation. So like with stable diffusion, you know, it has this sort of uh, VAE, which is a which is a, a variational autoencoder. So this is just kind of a, a lower dimensional representation of the image. And so if we can predict that, and then we actually just uh, uh, then decode that VAE representation that was predicted from the FMI signal. And that's kind of a very blurry image, but it has sort of some of the features that are important, like some of the position of the objects or the colors, things like this. And we can use that as a starting point for our diffusion process. So because our standard pre-trained image generation is usually some sort of diffusion process, we can use some of these sort of like image to image processes that people have been using and use this low level image as a starting point for the high level image generation to occur and so that way you can get the high level image uh, generation with the low level information so that's kind of this combination of uh, this sort of low level pipeline and this high level pipeline and this allows us to get you know very high metrics also on the low level metrics so you know people will do things like look at the uh, yeah just kind of again the comparison of the original image and the and the and the output image and of course if 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 you have very similar semantic information in terms of like, okay, this is a zebra, but the zebra is not in the same position. If you're gonna, you know, directly compare those images, they're gonna it's not gonna be very high, high the, the the results won't be very good in terms of that sort of low level comparison. But here we can show that our low level comparison actually is much better than previous approaches as well. So yeah, that's a that's a lot of information, I guess. But those are the different pipelines. And yeah of course feel free to ask questions about the specific pipelines and the
0: specific details. Uh, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully that makes sense. So, am I right, first of all, to say that kind of the the simplest first step is taking a fifteen thousand voxels, each a number, and mapping that to a clip embedding, and that's kind of the starting point, regardless of then whether you're going to go to the retrieval or to the reconstruction.
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Yes. So I guess first of all, how big is that? How big is a clip embedding? Like how many numbers is that at the end of the prediction?
1: It depends on I, I, yeah, because we, we, we did try different clip models. I don't remember which one we used finally. Um, but uh, it's the basically you have a sort of a a um a vector for each if in the case of text, it would be each kind of word or token, for example, and then those would be concatenated together uh, or in the case of an image. Uh, you know, for example, if you're using this sort of transformer, you have like image tokens as well. Um, so you have you have a, you have diff- you have this sort of array of, of vectors that you have for each image or each sentence or whatever. Uh, and then typically, uh, what people will do is they like would, for example, like average across that and just get a single vector that they work with. We don't actually do that uh, because it turns out if you actually do average, ac- ac- um, you know, if you average across all the uh, tokens. All this, you know all the words in the sentence or the entire image or whatever, you actually lose information that way. And if you actually keep that information and try to predict, basically we're predicting uh, you know the clip embedding for the whole image and not just that kind of global representation, but actually the different um, parts of the image as well. Again, that allows you to get some more spatial information, some more kind of low level accurate information that way too. But it's basically some sort of uh, a vector, for each of these tokens, uh, and then you know you have that. So it, it, overall it's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I can quickly look up the dimension if you, it's probably mentioned in the diagram, yes, yeah.
0: 257 by 768 if I'm reading yes. the diagram.
1: To, to cl- Yeah, so to clarify what that means, basically you have, um, for each token, you have a 768 vector. So for example, if you had a clip um, so yeah, again, clip image embeddings are a little bit different because basically the image is divided into uh, multiple patches and then you ha- then for each patch is treated as a sort of token. So then you have a 768 vector for each patch in the image. Uh, and then they have 256 patches. So there's 256 patches. so that's 256 of those 768 vectors. And also there's one global patch to uh, global representation for the entire, image so that's another you know another uh, 768 uh, vector so that's how you get 257 by 768 and so instead of just predicting you know a single 1 by 768 vector for the entire image we actually predict that 257 by 768 for you know each patch plus the full global representation so maybe hopefully that makes more sense in terms of what's being predicted here for the um for the clip image embedding
0: yeah. Interesting. So that's just, I mean, it's a dramatic increase in the number of numbers, right? I mean, you're going from 15,000 to something like whatever, 150,000, maybe 200,000 numbers. So that's always kind of interesting in and of itself. Now, is that, you're, so you're predicting there the image embedding? We're trying to predict the image embedding.
1: Uh, but again, when we predict it, it, it's you know we're predicting that this is sort of um, you know we have these different losses uh, like a contrastive loss and these all, all these different losses. So again, when we predict it, it doesn't it's not necessarily aligned from the very beginning to the image embedding. So it's not going to have the exact same values as the image embedding from the beginning, from you know the when we start out. And so that's why there's this additional process for the reconstruction. But you can use that predicted image embedding for uh, retrieval because the similarities will work out perfectly fine anyway without needing to do this alignment process so it's it's just um you know you, we predict these uh image embedding so that's why in the, in the paper we don't call it necessarily image embeddings the direct direct prediction from the mlp i think we call them like fmri embeddings or something like this um but it's not you know the direct output from the mlp isn't going to match exactly with the clip Im- image embeddings but you know that's kind of what is trying to be what we're trying to predict there
0: yeah and that's enough to do the retrieval out of like the lion 5 billion data set often down to even the single one image out of 5 billion correct
1: yeah that's basically correct yeah basically and so um again yeah we have this sort of contrastive loss that we're training the model the the M- MLP with and so that allows again for the cosine similarities to work out because we're doing this sort of contrastive learning similar to how the clip or the original clip models were trained and so then we can get the the sort of embeddings that work well with um, this sort of retrieval task.
0: Yeah. The next step is is doing this sort of aligning, and I'm a little confused there as to was there something preventing you from doing that in an end to end training sort of way, or was it just a matter of kind of we knew we wanted to do this in pieces anyway, so this was kind of a an efficiency. Like, why is that two steps instead of one end to end?
1: So that turns out to be a bit of actually a, a sort of trade-off between retrieval performance and reconstruction performance it, it's it's hard if you do like end to end it would be hard to get the best performance for both um both uh, both tasks dividing it up into these two process, processes these two pipelines this allows us to get uh, you know we can we have something that we can do well for retrieval tasks and then we can get something that does well for for image reconstruction so that's kind of the the main motivating factor therefore for dividing it up and again, we have some ablation studies in the in the paper that kind of demonstrates this 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 uh, concept of the sort of uh, trade-off between
0: reconstruction and retrieval. Is there an intuition for that? I'm a little drawing a blank as to why I would expect, you know, that they would... I currently don't expect, so you have to help me develop the intuition for why that would be the case.
1: I think it's potentially because there are some, yeah, like what may do... Like in terms of getting the nice... Cosine similarity that sort of again, you know, making sure these sorts of embeddings are similar to some images and different to others. I guess that's kind of different. I guess maybe different information is needed or different sort of, yeah, representations may be needed for that approach versus if you want to just take something to predict the, the final image. I guess there, there may be some differences. Yeah. I mean, it's even for us, and maybe we don't, I'm not sure if we have the, the, the best intuition as well for what's going on there, but. I, yeah I guess there are some you know there's a different information that may be needed for these um two different tasks i guess yeah it's a it's an interesting question why why the the reconstruction and the retrieval have yeah this sort of trade off
0: but the so if i again understand correctly the it is a sequential process even in the inference step, right like maybe I have this wrong, but what I understood was Voxel data comes in; it's first then mapped onto the clip embedding space in such a way where it'll have this, you know, using the contrastive learning, so it'll have this high similarity, so that you can perform your database search with like a vector database. Um, for folks who want to go deeper on that concept, we have a whole episode on vector databases uh, with uh, with Anton Chernikov who is um, from Chroma, one of the founders of Chroma. And they have a, a powerful demonstration of their technology built on this same data set you know, that, um, that really flexes the, the scalability of it. So go listen to that if you want to think about, uh, if you want to learn more about the, the nature of kind of doing these vector database searches. But OK, so you've got that. That's enough then to power the database search. And then you're doing another transformation sequentially, right, into the, the form that would then feed into the diffusion model.
1: Yes, that's 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 pretty much um,
0: the case, yes. So all the information is there the whole time, like that intermediate step, it contains all the information by definition, right, that then gets kind of reformulated. So is it maybe the case that just like the the constraints that you're working with are different across these tasks? Like maybe it's not sort of a fundamental thing and more like, well... <laughs> What the diffusion model needs is just different from what, you know, the sort of, you're training not necessarily for informational content, but like for a specific representation that is required for, to use some frozen existing system.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that was one of the things, as I mentioned, because the idea is that you have a diffusion model that's taking in, you know, specific clip embeddings. Uh, And so the the problem is that those um, embeddings that we produce, again, they're trained with this contrast of loss basically you, you, you can either train with the contrastive loss or you can train with like something like an MSC loss, which is more like, yeah, you can directly compare, you know, you can get the, the, the values to match exactly. Um, but so it's for the contrastive loss, that's good for that retrieval sort of task. So when we train with the contrastive loss, it's good for that sort of retrieval stuff. And so we're using that for the retrieval um, task. But then the problem is, again, those, those representations may not necessarily match uh, a regular clip image embedding. Again, it's useful for doing the sort of cosine similarity, getting similarities to existing embeddings, but they don't match those sort of existing embeddings directly. Um, and so, yeah, I, again, the, there's actually we have a good example of this sort of alignment process in the in the um, in the appendix of our paper. Uh, and so, if there's this sort of a UMAP depiction of the, the the clip image embeddings as well as the fMRI embeddings. And you can see that uh, without any sort of, without our sort of alignment diffusion prior process, you can see that the embeddings are kind of in two separate clusters almost, and so you know they don't they don't li- really line up together. Uh, and then we but we need them to line up together in order for us to be able to pass it into a image generation model that was trained with those clip image embeddings because yeah you want it to match those clip image embeddings um, because that's what the diffusion model knows to work with. So we're just trying to make yeah the information is there, but we're just trying to put it in a way that the model is used to, that the the pre-trained frozen models are used to, and I guess that also has to do with the different objectives, the, the sort of contrastive objective that we're training with. You know, it's easy to get you can train that you can get these good uh, representations for the retrieval of task, but it doesn't give you representations that match exactly the the clip image embeddings that we um, that we need for passing into the pre-trained models.
0: So the final version that actually can be passed into the image generation model, that is the thing that is directly analogous to the image embedding. And I see how that's represented in the figure. So is then maybe the surprising thing or the thing that like needs understanding is like, all that seems okay. And now I'm like, well, wait. So in addition to that, there's like a, a fact that if you want to maximize your Retrieval performance, you probably could just use those. If you had trained the whole thing end-to-end, end, you could use the the genuine, like aligned image embeddings to power retrieval, but it doesn't work as well. And what's revealed is there is actually a better uh way to represent these these um voxels for retrieval purposes that is kind of its own thing. It's like a it's kind of a different subspace in this space that somehow it kind of just gradient descends its way into. And we really don't even know what that is. That's like not really interpretable as of now.
1: Well, I think this is the same question for Clip in general, uh, because this is a similar problem with Clip image embeddings and text embeddings. They are not lined up in the same way. So I think this may be just kind of a general question in terms of, yeah, what what's going on in terms of the clip image embeddings and text embeddings, uh, yeah, but it, 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 it seems like when you train these sorts of models with contrast, these, this sort of contrastive objective, that doesn't really incentivize them to actually map to the same exact region, the same exact space. They map to kind of different spaces that have the appropriate, I guess, cosine similarities and appropriate relationships. Because the c- contrastive learning is just kind of just you know, trying to maximize similarity to similar things. And you know, minimize similarity to to things that are not similar, but I guess that doesn't nece- but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be in the exact same space, I guess. So I think there's there's sort of that question even in case of clip image and text embeddings as well. Uh, and again, that's why in the original DALI work, they did something similar where they took the the, the clip text embedding and then they had to incorporate this additional. Diffusion prior to convert it into a clip image embedding. They couldn't just pass in their text embedding into a diffusion model that took uh, image embeddings. So um, it's a similar sort of problem, and I think it's just kind of a question for the contrastive learning community, I guess, or something like this. Yeah, <laughs> I think it also has to do with the sort of like when you work in these high-dimensional spaces, it becomes, This is what this is something that starts to uh, to to show up. So I think that's the the other thing. It's like you know we're working with this very High dimensionality data um, in terms of the, the clip clip embeddings. So that's something that there's some something about about working with this uh, high dimension data that that leads to these sorts of properties.
0: If you had done the full end to end training, that would presumably be fine for the reconstruction. Yeah, I mean the goal was obviously to get
1: best reconstructions. We we tried different things out. I think we kind of stumbled upon upon this sort of uh, retrieval. Uh, Uh, task I think yeah because the issue is that if you'd want to go from again the problem is like if you're going from the fmi signal to the clip image embedding I guess it has to depend yeah it depends on the source of losses that you use because like if because we train it with a contrastive objective like theoretically it should work but maybe more practically it might be difficult to just directly go to the the clip image embedding I think that like because you can't so you can't train it necessarily maybe with a contrastive objective because that is meant that that's going to you know cause it not to be necess- it won't necessarily be aligned that way but like theoretically that that should be a perfectly fine pipeline but i think practically there there can be some difficulties getting such a model to train well and to to get get an accurate model at the end so that's that would be the caveat i would mention
0: cuz one thing that's really interesting about both of these papers that you've put out in the last uh short period is Again, the low data, uh, but also kind of the non-transformer like transformer architecture, right? I mean, you've got something here that uh, jumped out to me. Like, If I understand correctly, there's no attention mechanism in this architecture, at least in the models you've created.
1: Yes. The model that we create is basically the, the MLP. And so, yeah, there isn't really... Yeah, it's just the MLP. Um, and then, of course, the clip will have, of course, attention in there. Um, and of course, the diffusion models could have as well, but the MLP, not really. Yeah.
0: How big of a role then does the limited data set size play? Because you have basically just under a thousand images per individual, and you end up training models for each individual. So you're really just training on a thousand pairs of this is the image that the person saw. And the this is the fifteen thousand numbers for the fifteen thousand voxels, as measured for that image. That's it, right? Just a thousand of those pairs.
1: The the 90, I, I don't know if you're talking about like the nine eighty two. If that's what you were referring to in terms of under a thousand, that was specifically a test set. Um, there are, I think, of, uh, several thousand training samples that are used during training. And that was with the uh, retrieval. I, I I think that's the value you may be talking about. I, I'm not 100% sure if that's what you were. So that, yeah, that was that was just um, the retrieval experiments. And so basically, uh, we have so we have multiple subjects first of all. So that's another thing worth mentioning, is that we have multiple subjects. Uh, uh, so that's multiple different people that are looking at these images, and then the fMRI signal is measured. The fMRI signal is different per subject, and so we actually train separate models per subject. So the way we do that is that the, so we have the subject, we have subject one and the data for subject one is divided into a training set and a test set. And so, uh, you know, there may be a few several thousand samples from subject one uh, that's used for training. And then, you know, you have a test set again. And so, yeah, that, that's what we have. And then we then you have to do similar process for subject two and all the remaining subjects. And then another thing to, work, note, to note is that, yeah, so we have subject one. Um, we did all the model development on just subject one, and so um, like uh, yeah, any any sort of experiments were done. They were all done with subject one, uh, and then for, for the rest of the subjects, we just did the same. Whatever worked best for subject one, we did the same thing for the rest of the subjects, uh, and that's what and that's what we also reported. Uh, and then the other thing, of course, is that when we're looking at sub, you know, the data sets, you know, the images that the subject looks at during the training in the training set is different from the images that they look at that's present in the in the test set of course so just again to make sure that we are you know not overfitting or anything like this you know we want to make sure they're two separate sets but yeah there are uh you know several thousand samples you know for you know the the training set i think the exact uh information all the exact data is or the exact information is in the appendix of the of the paper uh but yeah. I mean it's still still not that much, of course.
0: Yeah, it's small, right? I mean, that's we're looking at, you know, five billion images in the in the Lion data set, and now we're talking, you know, basically one one millionth of that. Um, so it's it's surprising that you're able to get this much generalization out of seemingly such a small set, right? I mean, these images are just all kinds of different random Scenes and you know subject matter and you know it's a pretty diverse set of imagery that you're drawing from.
1: I, I think part 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 of the reason is because we are leveraging these uh, pre-trained models. So of course we're, we're leveraging the the representation space of the clip models, and so the model, the MLP just needs to learn how to map something that is similar to the clip image embedding space. So I mean, again, even with the sort of um, even before the diffusion prior alignment step, it's still mapping to some space that should have kind of similar properties of the of the of the clip image embedding space. And in terms of how the images are laid out in that space, it should also be similar. Uh, that's you know, it, it's it's still have some sort of similar properties of the uh, clip image embedding space. So I think that really helps. It's just like you're kind of already mapping to something that is a very well established. <laughs> Representation, so you have that sort of well-established representation that you're mapping to, and but again, also like we don't know how well it's going to generalize out of natural scenes, you know, whatever we were training with, and it's very much possible that it doesn't generalize out of those specific kind of images. Um, and yeah, again, it also has to do with the sort of image reconstruction, the sort of image generation models that we work with. They also may have some particular sets there that they are trained with, and those are the sorts of images they're best able to produce. So yeah, there are some sort of limitations in terms of the generalizability. And it ha- I guess, yeah, we haven't studied that as much, um, but the fact that we're able to train with such little data and get really good results um, is also partly because I think of this really rich representation space that we're working with, yeah.
0: One of my um, prior touchstone episodes that I always keep going back to was with the authors of Blip uh, out of Salesforce Research in Singapore. And I use some of their models in my own uh, product development work. And that was kind of my first, you know, trip down the rabbit hole of these kind of, you know, bridging or mapping from one high-dimensional space to another. And since then, it's like this just kind of comes up everywhere. It seems that to a first approximation, it seems like every space is kind of bridgeable or mappable to another space if you're clever enough to figure out, you know, where to put the, uh, you know, where to put the pylons. Does that seem right to you? Like, it seems like all these things are kind of learning similar world models under the... hood.
1: I think so. I think there is some, yeah, I think this idea of, of mapping... From one space to another, you know, one latent space to another. It's a very powerful idea, and um, yeah, I think that that uh, yeah, you. I think it's always best to try to take advantage of that as much as possible, and to also t- yeah, to take advantage of these pre-existing latent spaces, especially in the cases that you may not have enough data. I think this is really a, a great opportunity. Again, I mean, that's. I mean, this has been true. I think for a long time, I think more the, the more recent thing is the idea of these multimodal spaces. Of course, the general idea of using uh, pre-trained latent spaces is, isn't new. I mean, that's kind of what transfer learning in a nutshell kind of is, using the, the pre-existing latent space of these pre-trained models. Uh, but, you know, of course, a lot of them are more focused for specific domains. I think now the real advantage, the real, I guess, innovation these days is to be able to use these multimodal spaces as well um, and, and being able to, to map you know, different things to these, to these multimodal spaces, I think that's, that's kind of a really exciting area that, um, yeah, it, it's interesting to see lots of developments in that. I think there was like some papers that recently there was like mapping anything to anything. I think it's from Facebook, uh, Meta, I think that they published a paper like this. So there, it's, a, again, a very, very powerful idea. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess there is some sort of like base representation of, of something that can that, that can be um, utilized for various tasks. But yeah, I guess it also depends, like there are representations that are useful for certain things and, and that same representation may not be useful for other things. So it's also about like there are different representations for a particular image, for example, and maybe some representations are better than another depending on the task. So there's also a lot to explore in the sorts of like how is those representations trained and you know what what tasks are those useful for. Again, it comes, you know, maybe different sort of clip models, blip models, all these different models that are out there and they are trained with different uh different objectives and they lead to different representations. And that's something I think isn't 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 fully explored yet. And there's a lot of opportunity there to explore what you know the differences between these different representations and, and how they can be used for different applications. So lots to explore there.
0: <laughs> yeah. So we're not even fully done with the architecture. We alluded to kind of the last part um earlier, but since you mentioned like these you know, different pre-trained models and the different spaces that they have. You've got another kind of clever dimension to this as well, right? So that is the, and I'd love to maybe understand a little bit, again, trying to develop some intuition with the clip embeddings, you know, that is originally a joint space of language and text. And so you point this out in the paper that the image embeddings are kind of inherently more about the captionable part of the image, if you will. This is something I've explored in in a lot of different ways, too. But what notably things that are not included in the captionable, uh, you know, qualities of an image would be like, how beautiful does the image look? You know, is it appealing? Uh, you know, those things are typically not represented in captions they are not really captured in this clip representation all that much. So what you've really kind of Communicated is some sort of semantic understanding at that point that like this is what the image would contain. You also then have this other angle and then they can they converge at the end, but then you also have the um the stable diffusion v a e encoding, and I want to develop a little bit more intuition for that as well, but that has kind of the other half, which is like what does this thing look like kind of compositionally like What colors are where, and you have this kind of intermediate state that is like a blurry thing where it's like I don't necessarily know what that is, but I do kind of know where the color, you know, what colors are where, and like there's some blobs here. Yeah, well, I mean, what more would you tell us about that side of the pipeline?
1: I mean, that's pretty much a pretty good uh, summary of it. Uh, I think, yeah, the idea is just to map the fMRI signal to some sort of uh, VAE latent representation, and that latent representation it's coming that is coming from the stable diffusion uh, autoencoder. And that is able to contain a lot of this more low level information. And, um, and we are able to then output some sort of blurry represent uh, some sort of blurry image. And that is used as a starting point for the diffusion models that are then, um, producing the final image, given the, uh, fMRI clip embedding, the clip embedding that is produced. So, um, yeah, this is doing this sort of image to image process. Um, you know, people have explored this for various AI art applications already where you can kind of start out with some image often like, for example, you can start out with a sketch or something like this and then you take that sketch and then it, you can use like stable diffusion, for example, to just produce this beautiful image based on the sketch. But again, the idea is that, you know, the the output image has a lot of that sort of the colors or the... Or the um, the sort of structures, uh, the positions, very similar to that original sketch, uh, and so that's a similar idea is that we have that starting image uh, that's almost like a sketch of the, you know, of the final image, and we are then of course taking our diffusion model, which is given the semantic information coming from our clip embeddings, and it is producing a nice final result that matches the sort of maybe colors or the sort of spatial positions, structures that was there in the original very blurry kind of sketch of the image that was produced by our low-level pipeline. So, I mean, it's, again, very blurry. So it just helps a bit. It helps a bit and gives you better low-level information, better low-level results. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 good to have that additional information where you can kind of see. You have to kind of look for it and you can see, you'll start to see that it's kind of apparent that, okay, maybe that zebra is in the right place or that person is kind of in the right place and you know it's you see a little bit of that kind of matching up a bit comp- uh, when you look compared to the original image. And so um yeah, it kind of just provides an extra um, factor, that extra yeah I- improvement in the in the in the final image, I'd say, yeah. But again, yeah, it's not completely necessary. Like if you just want if you just cared about the semantic information, you don't need to have the low-level pipeline. It's not a necessary part of the You can just start from noise. Yes, exactly. You just start you start your diffusion model, you know, the typical process is it starts from noise and from noise, it does that sort of iterative process to produce the final image. So instead of starting from the low-level image, you could just start from noise and you can get an image that matches the semantic content of the original. But may not necessarily have that spatial information or colors or any of those things correct. So, yeah, you that's it's not a completely necessary part, but it just helps provide. Sometimes it'll just help improve the image a bit.
0: You're definitely standing on the shoulders of you know a lot of recent giants here, where it's like this work wouldn't even really have been possible in anything approaching this way. Whatever was the most recently released, you know, pre uh, you know kind of frozen model that you're that you're building on top of. I guess, it would be stable diffusion. So that's like you know six, eight months ago that that thing first, you know. We
1: actually, we, we yeah, we of course use stable diffusion. We we actually tested a few uh, different uh, pre-trained image generation models. We tested uh, stable diffusion variations because we're taking in clip image embeddings. So we're looking for the ones that other image generation models to take clip image embeddings. We trained, started with like stable diffusion image variations. I think it was Lafiti. I don't know how to pronounce that exactly. But it was like one again one of these other papers Lafiti and then uh versatile diffusion. And that's the one we actually went ahead and and actually used for the final image generation. It gave the best performance was this versatile diffusion model. And this is actually the one of the models that again takes in like I talked about the uh full clip embedding instead of the sort of global information, but actually the very like the information for each of the tokens, each of the patches. So that full 257 by 768 tensor. Some of the other models only take in the sort of global vector. That's just like 768 vector. But this one takes in the full information. And again, I think that also really contributes to much improved performance when you get that full information that the models predicting for the whole image, and you're passing all that information into your pre-trained diffusion models. And some of the diffusion models don't take that. And those ones are not really necessarily doing well uh, for this uh, for this task. But when you have a diffusion model that also takes all of that full information, uh, then yeah, it can actually uh, produce really, ac- uh, really, you know, really nice results. And I think yeah, versatile diffusion uh, is a paper that I think maybe maybe it went a little bit under the radar. But yeah, their models are actually actually quite quite good for for image generation as well. Uh, and so that's what we used and got the best performance. Uh, yeah, we can use any sort of future pre-trained image generation models that take in these sorts of clip image embeddings. So yeah, we're really excited that, you know, if Stability AI releases some other stable diffusion models that take in these clip image embeddings, um, these sorts of like variation models or whatever, that is much better. That should hopefully also give us uh, better reconstructions as well. But yeah, again, like you said, it's, you know, we're really building on top of these sorts of existing models. But I think it's also worth highlighting that this, these model our approach can uh, continue to work well for whatever future models also may come in the future, so that's also really exciting about our approach.
0: yeah, that's cool. So okay, let me try to play this all back um, in kind of one description and then I got a few other questions. then we can go on to the other paper uh, if you have time. So the I guess you know kind of working backwards, it's almost like all right, we we have this raw data about the brain, and we know on the other end, that there are these image generation models that have recently been created, and they can work in various ways. They could take text in. They could, you know, if we could somehow figure out you know, when they take the text in, they have to embed the text, and then we could figure out how to kind of bypass the text step and like project directly into the text space. And then there's all these variations where it's like, well, it could take an image in, it could take a, you know, it could take an image in and noise it, and then kind of take it in some guidance direction. And I think most of our audience will have at least played with these various tools, right? Where you start with text and make an image, or we had um, uh, Suhail from Playground AI on actually our very first episode, and they have a really nice kind of command-based image editing tool now. Um, and then, of course, you've got your you know image to image and all these different variations. People have played with all these flavors. So you kind of recognize that, like, okay, that's out there as something we can tap into. And I know that all the information I need is contained in these 15,000 voxel numbers. So then you're like, all right, I'm going to take kind of a pincer movement at it. You identify one kind of blurry representation space where it looks like I've basically just put, you know, a Coke bottle in front of the image and... I can just make out kind of color blotches and maybe some vague forms. And you figure out how to project the voxels onto that space so that you have kind of a good starting point for what the image qualitatively should look like. And then you separately say, okay, and I also know that I can guide that toward something semantically meaningful If I have the right representation to guide that, you know, the the diffusion of that blurry image towards something crisp. So then the other arm of the pincer movement is now we'll project those 15,000 voxel numbers onto this semantic representation, which is used to guide that reconstruction process. You put both of those things into an existing model, and now you're in business with reconstructions coming out.
1: Yep, that sounds about right to me.
0: All right. Uh, I love it. Well, we, I had to earn that one. Uh, <laughs> and there's And there's some really, again, super interesting things. Yeah. One thing I do really appreciate about the paper too, is you have this just kind of raw code architecture. That's like, this is how the model is set up and they're not that big. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about just kind of, I guess the scale for one thing. Um, I'm also always really interested in how long does this tra- take to train? You know, can you do it on you know, a machine like overnight. Like, what does your kind of cycle look like in terms of actually training these things? So, you know, your iteration cycle obviously follows from that.
1: Yeah. Um, in terms of training, I don't know exactly how long it took uh, because yeah, I wasn't the one training it. Again, the the main authors who, who in this case is Dr. Paul Scotty and Amit deep uh, Banerjee, they were the, the, the ones who were running a lot of the experiments. So I don't know how long exactly it takes to train. It's probably on the order of, of 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 several hours. It's not not going to be like days and days of training. That's not not the case here. But yeah, I you know I would have to confirm with them the exact timing of how long it takes to train. I think um in the in terms of how big the model is, it's it's mentioned in the paper somewhere. I think it was on the order of a billion parameters. Part of it is like also you see that if you get if you use larger models, they do tend to get better performance. So, you know, that's also definitely part, part of it. Yeah, I'm just looking at the, in the paper, it's like, not, I think the model that we finally used had 940 million parameters. So, you know, so oh yeah, close to a billion parameters that we used. In the paper, they have different ablation studies. We, we have different ablation studies of the different architectures that are used. So, you know, there are different things that we did try in terms of, yeah, model depth, parameter count, all these different um, aspects that we, we've tried and, and we found the best model. Based uh, based base on that, yeah. So I guess maybe yeah. It's, it's it's not it's not a too large of a model, but um, it's th- certainly certainly sizable. I guess one billion. Or, yeah, nine hundred forty million parameters. Still, still it's still a decent size. Yes,
0: GPT two scale in uh, rough terms. So yeah, trained on a just quoting the paper, one a one hundred machine for two hundred and forty epochs. Uh, with a batch size of 32. So, yeah, just one machine. Pretty amazing. Do you know how inference, uh, I assume inference would be like quite fast on this, right? Like, similarly, it should take sub second type of deal. Yeah, it, it's pretty fast, yes. And how about on the topic of the four individuals? So, you train models specific to the individual. Can we say anything about like how similar or different we are as individuals based on? If I was doing this, maybe you did this. I would be like, "All right, I'm going to put subject A's, uh, you know, data into subject B's model." And if I do that, do I get total garbage, you know, noise out? Do I get something that's like decent, but not as good as it was, you know, on their on the actual person's model? You know, how how different are we under the hood?
1: It's a good question. Yeah, I I don't know if we actually tried those t- experiments to be honest, but um, or yeah, maybe they ha- yeah I, I'd have to ask them, but. Yeah, definitely, there are some differences in the sort of visual perception that um, different people will have. So that that would lead to different representations. Yeah, I mean, we are interested in seeing if, for example, there is a way to somehow map them to some sort of shared space that can be used for anybody. But yeah, there are these sorts of minor differences in the in the visual uh, perception of of different of different people. So that's that's why we're required to to train separate models for the time being. But yeah, again, this is an open research question. To how, in terms of how we can, it'd be really nice if we could have one model that just works for everyone. Part part of it is also like we're trying to think of different approaches. Um, you know, we have different uh, projects that we're working on right now to uh, to address this. So again, if there, for example, people who are interested, who people listening to this who are interested in working in this further, you know, feel free to check us out. Um, and we can we have different projects like, you know, maybe some sort of foundation model for fMRI that's just trained on all kinds of fMRI data sets and, you know, then try to use that as something that we can map to, or, you know, some form of like, maybe, um, you know, you have a sort of shared latent space for all these different subjects and for any sort of fMRI data. And then maybe there are um, subjects that may need to do a few more image, yeah, you know, some more data collection to be able to kind of calibrate the model or something like this. So the different approaches that we are considering uh to account for that sort of difference in visual perception of the different of the different people. But again, this is an open research question and there's lots of interesting avenues of research there. And if people are interested in helping out, that'd be you know, feel free to to, to join us. Um and yeah, so I think there's a lot lot to explore in that direction.
0: It sounds like if I understand you correctly there, your expectation would be kind of like we should be able to get to a point where relatively fast, like calibration would be possible. Maybe another, you know, if we sort of extend, we said, okay, originally we had, you know, 5 billion images in the, in the datasets that trained like the, you know, foundation models, it took a a few thousand images to train something that could kind of bridge the, you know, voxel space into the embedding space. And it sounds like you think there's probably enough kind of similarity there that maybe you can bring it down another thousand fold and have like a five image, you know, calibration step that could kind of fit your personal, you know, biology, you know, shape of your own head, whatever, to the, you know, to the kind of shared FMRI latent space. That's basically where you think this is going.
1: Yeah. I think that's the, 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 the hope that we have that, that, that something like that may be maybe possible and this is again something that you know the the the, the main author dr Paul Scotty he's been really uh kind of trying to spearhead spearhead this effort in terms of trying to develop these sorts of um, approaches and so he's really excited about about this and and really thinks that something like this would be possible you know there's various questions that need to be answered like what are those sorts of five for example if it, if it is just five images what are those five images going to be are this, are those different images poor Per per subject, maybe there are some images that you know. Maybe there, yeah, you may have to find different optimal images, Uh, and then yeah, how's that going to map appropriately? So there's lots of open questions, but the general idea is that's kind of where we're hoping we can we can get to that kind of kind of uh, stage in terms of in terms of yeah image reconstruction, and yeah, that'd be pretty exciting, I think, if we can get something like that working.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. How much do you think this ultimately feeds into? better understanding of the brain, which seems like there's, you know, tremendous potential there versus, you know, the other direction would be like, you know, wearable devices, um, you know, sort of more kind of, you know, well-person consumer application. What's your kind of expectation for how this research develops in that respect?
1: In terms of like, yeah, let's start with the first thing of like wearable devices and things like this. Of course, the fMRI is like, you know, you, you have to go into this MRI machine. It's this very large machine and, you know, it's and it's a very, you know, involved and time-consuming process. So to be able to use the fMRI for variable, I think there's that would require a lot of development on, in terms of MRI technology and stuff like this.
0: Yeah, it's a strong magnet to be carrying around, no doubt.
1: So it's like, um, that's more of like a hardware problem that, you know, I don't know when that would, if something like that would be solved, and if so, when. There are alternative like variable uh, approaches for measuring brain activity, things like EEG there i think f n r n i r s different approaches but like again they have different sorts of trade offs in terms of the signal that they provide you know the sort of spatial resolution temporal resolution so like eeg is good in terms of like it's got a good temporal resolution but its spatial resolution is is is, is less than fmri and we already talked about how fmri's spatial resolution isn't already isn't like actually that great to be honest. Like we talked about, it's like just this sort of millimeter by you know, two millimeters by two millimeters by two millimeters voxel, and you know, EEG is even more coarse grained than that. So it seems very unlikely that you can get a, a decent signal from EEG. For example, there may be some other technologies that may be able to get some signal, but I, I'm not entirely sure um, what other ones you can get signal from. So I think there's a lot more of like at this point, it's more like there's a need for better hardware that's able to actually get. High quality uh, signal. If you want this to work for variable applications, so I'm not sure if this is like necessarily possible right now. Uh, and again, like even then, it's like okay, maybe if you don't use fMRI, then if you're using some other technology, then you have to validate if a similar approach would work well for these other other technologies. I, I expect like if you have a high quality data set with high resolution and you get the relevant information, the approach, the general approach should should work well. But, you know, it still needs to be tested and validated. So like for basically to summarize for variables, you need better, uh, you basically need a better hardware to be able to, to do this. And um, if you are using a different technology, then you need to be able to validate that for that other technology. So that's why I'm not really like certain that, you know, this is something that could be used for consumer applications, but it's not going to happen within the next couple of years, I'd say. Uh, but, you know, maybe if there are some interesting hardware developments, there could be something that that may be possible in the future.
0: Because what I would imagine it would be a fundamental challenge of like a consumer hardware scenario would be what kind of resolution can you get? So I wonder if you could start to anticipate what you might need by taking your current approach and being like, what if we just make it four millimeters cubed instead and we just, you know, average the, you know, that number across, you know, if you take a, an eight, you know, bit, um, Turn, you know go from eight voxels to one by you know doubling the the edge length, and then just take the average of those numbers. Now you just have you know instead of fifteen thousand, you have whatever about two thousand, a little less than two thousand, right? Numbers. Have you did you try anything like that? Do you think that you could just kind of be like, what if we just fuzz our data and like see how far we can fuzz it before we can't read it anymore?
1: Yeah, we haven't actually tried anything like that. But one thing that I think we we may investigate uh, in the future is just also just some of the other data sets in terms of, uh, yeah, I mean, there are some of these other data sets that use less powerful magnets. I mean, that's what's been used in the field so far until maybe a couple of years ago when this new data set got released. So, um, you know, it could be worth just also trying those other data sets as well and seeing what kind of performance people get with those data sets. uh, yeah, and then again, your idea sounds like an interesting idea too. So there, there's definitely lots of different um, approaches to 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 test out that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's definitely an important question to 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 think about um, how much data or how much of the actual signal is needed and the sort of signal to noise na- ratio needed. But yeah, I think even then, like something like EEG or something like this is still like significantly coarser than than than. Um, fMRI even some of these less powerful fMRI uh, machines um, yeah and then I guess the other question was about research sort of applications as well right we, we mentioned this also a bit in the paper and you know there there are some potential int- potentially interesting applications so for example you could imagine just trying to study the image reconstructions of of different uh, you know patients with different neurological diseases you can see like how, how those sorts of reconstructions change over time as degrees progresses. and when, Or you can use them potentially for some sort of diagnostic applications as well. So one example that, you know, we were thinking of is like, if you had someone with, with a depression, maybe their reconstructions, you know, look a little bit different in terms of like, yeah, maybe a little bit more dull, maybe a little bit, yeah, there may be some differences in the reconstructions that we'd be able to pick up on. Um, there are various studies that look at kind of these sorts of responses um, to images to or even just like mental imagery things like this and a lot of those have been very coarse grained just be like imagine some sort of object or yeah, like it's very like it may maybe imagine an animal or something it's very coarse grained and so being able to also have this more fine grained information that there, there could be a lot of really useful neurological studies that could be done if you're able to get that fine great information from 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 a from a subject in terms of what they're imagining what they're looking at and being able to reconstruct that but yeah i think there's a lot of interesting things in terms of like yeah degrees uh, disease progression and, and diagnostics and of course you know you have this more kind of basic applications of like yeah if you have locked- in patients who are in coma or unable to communicate with the outside world maybe some of these could be useful, again, maybe with further development of variable technology and things like this, you can use it for interesting medical applications. So yeah, I think there are lots of interesting uh, medical applications and research applications out there. And um, yeah, I I think we're starting to reach the point where maybe these sorts of image reconstructions can be used for interest to, to, to research interesting clinical problems and neurological problems. So yeah it's, i think it's quite exciting um so even if it's not necessarily being used for you know the the you know mind reading for consumers i think there are still lots of uh interesting applications that we'll see in the short term uh for in, in clinical research
0: yeah i think one of my big takeaways from this paper is just how many doors are opening you know the so many different doors kind of recently opened that enabled you to do this and i think you know you're obviously going to be showing the way to others and It seems like as much as we have seen a lot of awesome stuff in the last couple of years, something tells me, you know, we're not anywhere near, you know, kind of the end of the, you know, the fruitful exploration of the current paradigm. And, you know, the fact that you're able to do this kind of work with a single A100, you know, is uh, pretty uh, telling, you know, in terms of how much value is already kind of you know, embodied in these foundation models and just waiting for, you know, a super, you know, clever person to come along and figure out how to, you know, piece together the right architecture to kind of bridge different spaces and, you know, make all these different uh, things talk to each other. It's going to be wild, I think.
1: One of the interesting things about this project is kind of, you know, how it was done, how it was, uh, uh, how it was conducted in terms of uh, the sort of open research environment and um uh, Organization that, that we had. So this was again done as part of of, of MedArc, which is the sort of research organization that I, I've, I've founded. Um, the projects that we work on are done in this sort of collaborative and decentralized manner, and done in an open source manner. So of course the the GitHub repository was always open source for people to look at and contribute. And and uh, you know there would be weekly meetings on Discord and you know chat chatting on Discord, uh, sharing research ideas, sharing progress. So all that was happening, um, and then the compute was provided by by Stability AI, and you know they were able to support our research. And yeah, I think this sort of approach w- was really great because we were able, and a lot of interesting, smart and clever people were able to to contribute to this project. So really was grateful for the contributions, of course, of Dr. Paul Scotty, who's the, the the lead author, and also uh, Ahmed Deep Banerjee, who's also really came up with you know, really was working on this project a lot and, you know, came up with some of these really interesting ideas that really uh, pushed this forward and and really was able to to help get this working. Uh, And then just so many other contributors from around the world that was able to to work on this. I think this is an interesting project that kind of demonstrates the the value of, of this sort of open collaboration as well. And, you know, with this sort of open collaboration, we can do all kinds of incredible things as well. I think, yeah, like you said, there's a lot of other interesting aspects in terms of being able to use foundation models that enables new opportunities. Uh, and then, of course, this sort of collaboration that is happening. So I think, you know, this is something that, you know, these sorts of things wouldn't have been possible just just a few years ago. And so it's quite, quite incredible what, what's, what's possible now. And, you know, it can be done by people, you know, that are sitting somewhere half halfway across the world and you know working from their laptop and it's it's kind of incredible what's 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 possible these days so yeah